Hello everyone, welcome back to episode 9 of the Early Education Show. It's really great to be back with you. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. And we hope everyone's had a fantastic children's week as they're recording this. So we thought this week we might uh, do things a bit differently. We're going to do a big focus on children's rights this week. So uh, we'll kind of be looking at children's rights as a single topic, but to sort of keep with our regular format, we're going to split it into two sort of sections. So we're going to look at children's rights in Australia in general, and then look at uh, specifically children's rights in early childhood and for so the early childhood professionals. But um, So there'll be our sort of broad topics for tonight. So looking forward to having some uh, very rights-based discussions around that. We hope it's useful to any professionals and educators who are out there um, engaging with Children's Week this week. But we'll kick off, as we always do, with the news of the week. And Leanne, I think we were chatting before. This might be your first time delivering the news of the week. Are you excited? I'm really excited. This is um, a very exciting moment for me because it is the first time that I've been allowed to do the news of the week. <laughs> oh, come on. You've been allowed to. Actually, I don't think I was allowed to. I think I pushed into the line for this one, but I did think this was a um, really great one and not just a not just a feel-good story, but I think it demonstrates uh, the work that early childhood services often do in the community that we don't always um, we don't always take notice of. And this one is it's actually a news um, video from Win News uh, with Cullingutty Early Ch- Early Learning Centre, who participated in or contributed to uh, the Paint the Town Red work that is done around children's literacy. And it sort of was linked with a survey that was done by the Salvation Army. They were sort of trying to draw some some loose links there about how families prioritised things that they bought. And they noticed that in this survey that books were well down on the list, the sorts of things that families didn't buy for their children because they simply couldn't afford them. Anyway, the Cullingutty Child and Family Centre actually had a little project where the children put together book packages for families who couldn't afford the basics. And I thought it was a wonderful contribution to the community, which is really the theme around the Paint the Town Red, where they they do try and support children's literacy in the community. So Cullingutty put this project together of giving books to the communities of families who couldn't afford those books. And I think this is the sort of work that early childhood services often do. And it's they're firmly embedded in the community and, and really contribute well. So I thought it was a great good news story for the week. Yeah, thanks for bringing Yeah, thanks for bringing that to us, Leanne. I think um, everyone sort of always talks about sort of magic bullets and things that will really quickly, you know, the the things that will solve things in um, for young children. And pretty much the closest we have is uh, literacy. So all the research and all the stuff that goes out there is really clear about that. Just you know, children being surrounded by books and um, their uh, you know significant people in their lives spending time reading to them is you know about one of the biggest protective factors you can have against um disadvantage and opportunity but you know books uh you know good books are really expensive it's if i was heaven forbid ever put in charge of the country the first thing i do is just subsidize children's book you should be able to wander into any bookshop and just pick up a whole range of you know amazing books for 10 bucks but it's just amazing you look at them they, you know, the good ones are like you know 20 15 mm. which is just out of reach for a lot of families Definitely. Let alone, you know, whether um, bookshops are kind of culturally welcoming for all people as well. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, thanks, uh, Leanne. Yeah, that was a really great story to hear about some fantastic work that early childhood professionals are doing in that space. But um, let's get right into it. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about tonight. So like Sir Week, but obviously Children's Week's being celebrated this week and uh, it's uh, nominally the sort of, um, not just in terms of celebrating children, but particularly with focusing on the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. So they pick a um, one of the articles to focus on each year and this year it's uh, Article 17 which is sort of talks about children's access to media. Now I think I'll start by saying we're probably not going to focus on that specific part of it tonight. I think we wanted to have a general discussion but luckily one of us has had that discussion already so if you haven't already heard, if you want to have uh, it's a really great discussion on that particular topic. I'd really recommend going and uh, checking out the Gowrie New South Wales uh, podcast, which featured none other than Lisa Bryan. Lisa, it was great to hear you on that. Did, was that a good discussion to have with Gary? Uh, it, it really was. But I must say, I find, like, you know, I was asked as a journalist to do it, but I do find, you know, media rights and children, like, a, of all the rights, you know, in the convention, it's not one of the ones I would have picked as a theme for Children's Week. It's kind of, you know, a little bit out there. Yeah, I was going to, and that sort of, yeah, so we're probably not going to really touch on that this week. I think it's an it's, it's an interesting one. I did a little bit of um, work for the New South Wales Children's Week Council just on how centres can engage with it. And it is, it's a bit of a tricky and difficult one. It's probably not, you know, it's not the one I would have chose, just like you said, Lisa, but, you know, there's definitely mm. things to pull out there. But I think we're, we're going to have, so the first half of our topic tonight is children's rights in Australia. Um, which it's probably a very interesting time to have that discussion given the last few months, if not the last few years in Australia. But um, I guess I wanted to kick it off with a pretty simple question. How are we going with children's rights in Australia? Do we feel that they're currently being pretty successfully upheld at the moment? No. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, everyone. We'll be back next week. (laughs) Look, I I can't think of a time when children's rights have been so universally trashed by a country as right now in Australia. If we look at just, you know, to me there's just three things that, you know, lead that way. One is obviously our treatment of refugees in detention centres. Next is what we're doing with detention of children in Australia, especially Aboriginal children in almost every state and territory of Australia. And thirdly is just, um, you know, Aboriginal poverty and the gap in Aboriginal outcomes for Aboriginal children compared to other children in Australia. I think all of those things say, no, we're not actually doing that well with rights right now. And I think it's frustrating because Australia was one of the key drivers of the UNCRC, so it was ratified in uh, 1990, so we had the 25th anniversary of the um, the declaration being um, uh, sort of developed and signed off uh, last year. And Australia, um, I think, can you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I think I think Australia was the the first, if not one of the first, um, to sign on and was really involved in sort of pushing that at a national level and to see how poorly we do it now. And I just want to pull out so. Um, I'll include the link in the show notes. Yeah, so at the 25th anniversary last year, um, the UNICEF uh, did a progress report for Australia. So there, there's you know there's good things, but there's also poor things. But um, the opening remarks by a guy named um, Alastair Nicholson, 
um, who used to be the Chief Justice of the Family Court in Australia, he pulled out a quote from 1990 from one of the people at the UN who was really pushing this. And he said, and um, this guy in 1990 said, the topic of children's rights is a controversial one. While espousing the need to protect children, emphasising their vulnerability and identifying their importance as future adults, many individuals, organisations and nations either flout basic principles or bulk at the convention of rhetoric into action. And I think, you know, that was 26 years ago now, and it basically firmly sums up where Australia is now. We, we've we signed up to these things and pretend we do them, but there's, you know, the... the, the, the the scale of Australia's breaching of the UNCRC is is almost um, well. It's not laughable. There's nothing sort of funny about it, but it's it's completely obvious, and it's in- incredibly disappointing for a you know a well-off country that we just can't you know do these things that seem so simple. And um, Liam, there were also within that the, the progress report. It was really interesting to look at some of the obvious elements, which we know about the three-year-old access is not up there for um, early education access and the issues around uh, children's refugee children's rights. But there were also some interesting things around inclusive education and our lack of capacity to include children with disabilities along with their peers. And I thought there was a really interesting phrase there that we're awash with low expectations, which was, I just, when I read that, I just felt like it was that's such a terrible thing for a country like ours where there's, there is opportunity but so many people are excluded from that opportunity and that was that really struck me. And also that everywhere throughout it, early intervention is absolute, absolutely the key, early intervention in everything, in education, in inclusive education, in identity and citizenship, all of those things, and yet this was where we just keep ignoring the evidence that it is the key, and think we'll we'll just make it up as we go along, you know, in the light in the later years. So it really was quite striking in that progress report that we just ignore the fact that early intervention is key. And I think it's probably worth, and we probably uh, it's tempted to go point by point, but I don't think we will because we'll be here forever. But um, you're right, Leanne. There's a there's a number of um, within the um, the progress report from last year. There's a number of recommendations for the government, and they're probably diplomatically phrased as recommendations rather than here's the things you're not doing so well and please do better. Um, the ones that really stood out to me in terms of the conversations we've been having as a sector and on this podcast over you know the last couple of months have been, um, and actually very particularly given Kate Ellis's speech last week, um, one of the recommendations is uh, providing um, subsidised quality early learning for vulnerable children from birth to two. So we're still struggling in Australia to embed the four-year-old preschool. We're having the conversation now about three years. Um, and UNICEF, you know, in relation to the UNCRC is really clear that um, to support and to sort of inoculate that um, cohort of children who are likely to be um, vulnerable, the birth to two years is, is the most important time. And it also talks about um, provide early childhood services to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children um, free or affordable access um, we're at a time when we're looking at entirely uh, cutting access to that and developing an early years workforce development strategy, which again is going to lapse at the end of the year and uh, is very, very unlikely to be um, reinstituted. So, you know, I think we're performing pretty poorly as a country, not just, you know, in terms of our overall approach to children, but even within the recommendations here in terms of early childhood education. Yeah, we've got a long way to go. 
And if you look at some of the recommendations outside um, early childhood, one of the ones that really struck me was the call that we should ratify the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture and other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. And I think if you look at what we're doing, you know, in our offshore detention centres, I think that's the reason why we haven't yet ratified that particular um, uh, protocol to yeah. the convention. And yeah. that's that's really sad. When One of the things that I discovered in my research, because, yes, we do research these topics <laughs> before we talk about them, um, is that the only country in the world that hasn't yet ratified the convention is the United States. Somalia and uh, some Sudan, I think, ratified it in 2015. So it left the United States as the only country not signing up. And the reason why they don't is because they imprison <laughs> up to 70,000 children a day. And really imprisoning children isn't so good for human rights. And, you know, they might have to justify some of that. Um, if they ever did sign up to it. And the other reason why they haven't signed up to it is because of an internal kickback, because this would mean we couldn't um, administer corporal punishment to children. Well, yeah, so because a... Americans want to beat their children, mm -hmm. they won't sign up to the convention. Well, that's probably a but... good segue to one of the um, parts of this I wanted to discuss, which is this um, sort, of, sort of term, contested rights. So one of the... Um, challenges with the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child and why, uh, like you said, the US hasn't signed up for it and why over the 25 years, you know, it, it, that some, it, it took a countries a long time to, is this idea, uh, and let's kick it around, but this idea that if you give rights to children, you're taking rights away from parents and the corporal punishment is the best example of that. So this idea that um, smacking children, so once they turn 18, it's assault. Under under eighteen, it's discipline, or it's the parents' right to discipline their child. Um, this is a really, I think, in my in, in, in our discussions, I said this is a very thorny topic, and I've had lots of discussions with this on people. But um, this, to me, is a basic principle of children's rights that they they are not assaulted, and to call and I, and I will call it assault because that's what it is, and anything else is um, is you know weasel words. But you know. Australia is not alone in this in the world, that there are actually very few countries in the world that have made this illegal, and disappointing that New Zealand did it and then backtracked. When, you know, have, you, have you two sort of thought about this topic at all? Yeah, like to me it's quite simple. Nobody can have a right if it infringes on another right, on another person's right, right? So why should... Um, like, for parents to have the right to beat their children, it's infringing on children's rights to not be beaten. So, therefore, you know, bugger off parents. There was a... Um, well, exactly. And in my uh, research, we're referring to our research a lot tonight, I was uh, looking at an article from the Human Rights Journal and it talks about the myths that are associated with the convention. And the third myth that they deal with with is that the convention interferes with parents' rights and is anti-family. But 
I think that the only right that it does interfere with is the one that you're talking about there is that, you know, a parent's right to, to physically punish their child. And it, it breaks it down in, in an interesting way in talking about how the convention protects the rights of families. And it and does, because Article 5 actually says that governments must respect the rights, responsibilities and duties of parents to raise their children. That's right. Yeah, so it does already give parents a fair amount of leeway, just maybe not bashing them. But where this well, becomes, yeah, where this becomes very difficult, I think, and I remember attending a, a forum or something on this, is that where we make things really difficult for families, so particularly uh, families who are, you know, labelled with that PTSD term vulnerable or who are, um, you know, existing in poverty or who are, you know, didn't have particularly good childhoods themselves, they're their ability to navigate the rights of their child in relation to their own, you know, ability to parent is where this becomes very challenging. So when, if you remember back to the dark days of 2014 when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, there was some bizarre, you know, story where he, he basically said, look, it's the parent's right to smack a child. Um, and there and the, the people that there was a huge swell of agreement across Australia and a lot of this is due to... Um, you know, we can sort of talk ourselves around and around in circles about parenting approaches, but when people are, you know, challenged with poverty or their own vulnerability, this is, you know, an area of control they can exercise over their lives. So it's a very... It's a, it's yeah, but you can't get control over... Your, you, if you have to get control over your own life by oppressing somebody else, then something's not working. Yeah, well, that's that, um, that was a, an interesting... A point in this article it was saying it's difficult to understand hostile opposition to the convention from some family and some religious organisations. The convention enshrines the preeminent position of parents in relation to the child in Article 5 and in Article 18 um, and that no matter how disruptive or dysfunctional modern family life may be it, you can't blame it on any form of law or on the convention and that's you know it's it's sort of trying to this is trying to protect the rights of families but make preeminent the rights of children and the rights of children not to to have power used over them yeah and there was some specific research about there was and annoyingly i did try and find the link before and if i can find it i'll, I'll put it in the show notes i couldn't find it for the discussion today but there was some specific research about the effects of um you know what's termed uh, smacking in the article but it sort of talks about how it's exactly the opposite effect that families wish. So it's it's nominally to enforce discipline. It is absolutely about power and control. But it always has the opposite effect. So it makes children, um, you know, uh, act out. It, it, it is entirely the wrong way to do it. All the evidence says it's actually the very worst thing you can do if your desire is for a compliant child. So it's... But, but I don't know. I, I, I cannot even imagine in the next 10, 15 actually, years that this I is going to become illegal in Australia. That's why people um, punish children or hit children. I don't think that they're actually looking for a compliant child. I think they're. I think how power works is that people who are relatively powerless use whatever power they have against other groups of people. Hence the subjugation of women by men. And I think it's the same thing that often we have parents who don't have a lot of control over their lives who use whatever little bits of power they've got to control someone else, i.e. their own children, 
because that gives them some semblance of control over their own life. Mm. And I think it's but it's interesting that that idea of child children's rights in Australia is really wrapped up into how we how we treat families. I think in Australia and with you know a lot of particularly the conservative government at the moment their approach to welfare and their approach to um, how families are supported that I think you know creates a lot of these issues. But um, yeah, I agree, Liam, and I think it is the support for families and the understanding of the complexity of parenting yeah. with you know from a whole raft of experiences that families bring to the parenting of their children it's it's so complex it's incredibly complex yeah slashing paid parental leave should help with you know that important uh, oh yeah for sure yeah (laughs) that should do fantastic wonders for children's rights that's a topic for another another podcast i'd love we we should definitely get into that but i guess we wanted to wrap up this general discussion on children's rights in australia with um i guess personally so so you know the three of us why what, why do we see the Convention on the Rights of the Child as um, being really important? Um, did you want to go first, Leanne? No pressure. Um, oh, look, yes. I think that this is the convention is so important. And I guess I think of it as a bit of a playbook in a way, you know, a reference point for um, all of our thinking around what children's rights should be and how we should be respecting and treating children. And so it's a, it's a good reference point to go back to. And also for us to check in and see whether we are doing a good job, which clearly in Australia we aren't. Um, And just the fact that that's there and that we can make some comparisons, I think, is a good start to making improvements. For me, it's a bit like the Code of Ethics, you know, the, the ECA Code of Ethics. It's a checking in and looking at whether how well we are doing and, and whether I'm personally um, adhering to those that convention as well. To me, it's two kind of things. One is um, I tell this story a lot because it it, it really had impact on me. It was, uh, I think, maybe at one of the first ECA conferences I'd been to, or maybe it wasn't, maybe it just feels like it was that long ago, um, Chris Sadoti spoke and he said um, uh, adults have a lot of rights, children have little. Do you choose as an adult? to stand in the service of children's rights. And to me, that just kind of almost codifies what an educator should be doing, standing in the, you know, in the service of children's rights. The other reason is a bit less, you know, um, uh, profound than that. But since 2011, there's been a requirement that um, all... Um, bills that pass through Parliament um, have to undergo a compatibility assessment with human rights. It's called the Human Rights Parliamentary Scrutiny Act 2011. So anyone um, of the five people that are probably listening to this that have actually read the Jobs for Families package, other than you two, I mean, of course, I know you two have both read it, will see that in it there's a thing, you know, does this actually, does this legislation actually stand up to our, um, to what we've signed up to, what um, conventions we've signed up to, does this legislation uphold human rights? Now, this, you know, in this case they've said, yes, the Jobs for Families package does uphold human rights. I'd argue that and I'd argue that a lot of what's written in that section actually you know, is absolute crap. But I think the fact that 
that's there for every piece of legislation that gets passed by Parliament is really important because it means that any legislation being passed by children, passed about children, has to be checked against the convention. Yeah, that's a, a, a good win. Probably hasn't, yeah, as, you're, as you're saying, probably hasn't really helped the Jobs for Families package, but at least it, um, yeah, is a bit of an overlay. And I think probably to me in terms of that, that's probably how, why the UNCRC is so important. There's, it's definitely got some runs on the board, I think, particularly in, in the area globally of um, uh, primary education. There's been a really big increase in um, how that's been rolled out um, internationally. There are definitely, you know, it, it's it's... The, the challenges with the, the convention are it's not enforceable. It's basically there as a kind of, uh, I think it's termed a persuasive measure in the, in the in the progress report. Clearly, Australia is ignoring vast swathes of it. But what it is, it's a it's a thing we've signed up for. And I think for me, it's primarily great as an embarrassment factor for the governments. And when we have these things happening on uh, Nauru and Manus Island, we have things um, like the um, the uh, current royal commission into the Dondale. Um, centre and the criminal justice system in the Northern Territory in particular, the you know Royal Commission into Institutional Sex Abuse. We have this document, we say we've signed up for it and even if it's just holding ourselves to account and, you know, when it's um, despite the fact, you know, the old conservative, you know, thinkers out there see this as, you know, the, the jackboot of the, you know, bloody world government, um, it's it's important and we may not, you know, it's, it, it's still, I think, aspirational in many ways, but it's a document we can... Um, you know, crazy advocates like us can point to and say, well, we, we agree to this and we need to at least hold ourselves to this standard and, and where we're not, we, we call it out. So as a, as a bit of a yardstick and a, and a tool for advocacy, I think it's, you know, vitally important. I think it, you know, should be one of those key documents that every educator knows alongside the, you know, the early years learning framework and the ECA code of ethics. It is, it is part, of the, part of a teaching course and part of your diploma, isn't it? Uh, can't you at, at the, looking at the convention and yeah. human rights? Oh, yeah. yeah, it's it's embedded in all all um, qualifications and course courses, but it's not given a great presence in those. I think, it, like everything, it doesn't have enough time that's dedicated to it. But certainly, codes of ethics and conventions are foundational in those courses. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Um, now we before we wrap up and head to uh, our sort of second half of this topic, which is going to be children's rights in the early childhood sector. Um, Leanne, I might pass over to you because you were fortunate enough last week to um, attend a fantastic event that looked at this very issue of international children's rights. Do, and we're going to cross to an interview you conducted with a couple of the people there. Did you want to give us a bit of a background to that event, though, and who you chatted with? Yeah, sure. So it was actually just a meeting of the New South Wales chapter of um, OMEP. And OMEP is an international organisation which is the um, the World Organisation for Early Childhood Education. It's actually a French title. And this group comes together to have a world assembly and focus on issues around early childhood education. I was lucky enough to talk with Associate Professor Fran Press and Dr Sandy Wong post that meeting, who had attended the 68th World Assembly in Korea. And the reason why I wanted to have a chat with them was because it, they, at this assembly there was a declaration that was made addressing the rights and needs of the youngest displaced migrant, refugee and asylum-seeking children. And particularly relevant when we're talking about 
um, children's rights, but we've also been focusing on this issue over the weeks in our podcast. And so it was great to talk with them and talk about that organisation, which is working to uphold those rights and needs of, of those young children. That's great. So we're going to um, we're going to wrap up this topic, and uh, in just after the brief musical interlude, you're going to hear from Leanne speaking with uh, Fran and Sandy, um, and then we'll be back with our discussion on children's rights in early childhood. So stay with us. I want to welcome Associate Professor Fran Press and Dr. Sandy Wong to the Early Education Show. And uh, we're going to be talking about some actions around children who are refugees um, and we're going to talk about an international organisation which is working specifically on this issue. So first of all, Fran? Um, we're talking about IMEP and IMEP is a French acronym which in English translates into the World Organisation for Early Childhood Education. It was formed after the um, displacement of many children and mistreatment of many children after World War II. It has a, had a very strong um, humanitarian and children's rights focus and um, it's a fairly extraordinary organisation because it actually has a seat or it has a had has special consultative status with the United Nations. And at the last IMEP assembly which was held in Seoul in Korea in July 2016 it released a declaration um, which is an urgent call to address the rights and needs of the youngest displaced migrant refugee and asylum-seeking children. Sandy, you and Fran attended the International Congress where the declaration is made, was made. Can you tell us the four objectives of that declaration? Um, IMAP calls on all the members of the the 70 members of the organisation, the international organisation, um, to ensure humanitarian and just conditions for all displaced migrant, refugee, and asylum seeking children, um, to create public policies and mechanisms through which the treatment of these young children will be transparent and realistically assessed, to protect these children by providing secure places for them to play and learn and to educate teachers and caregivers to work successfully with these and other traumatised children as they gain access to educational programmes and systems, as we know is their inalienable right, which is guaranteed under the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child. So it's a really powerful declaration that's been made. So what does that look like from the perspective of the Australian um, OMEP brand? Well, I think for Australia generally... The treatment of asylum-seeking children, particularly in offshore detention, is one of the great moral challenges of our time. And I think for the Australian OMEP, it's really a call to action for us to be vocal and challenge the treatment of these children and to really um, refer back to the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child to think about how do we create safe, humane and nurturing places for children that have been displaced by war and trauma. Um, I think uh, we have to remember that the actions we're taking now have long-term consequences. And what disturbs me as an Australian citizen is that I know Australia was at the forefront of um, welcoming refugees in the wake of World War II. 
and our nation has been really built on the back of migrants and refugees and people that were displaced by war um, during the 40s and 50s. And today we seem to have lost a sense of that tradition and um, we really are making children suffer um, in a way that's just not acceptable. So I think for those of us that are concerned with children's rights, that really think that this is not the right thing to do, we should be using this declaration of the World Congress of the OMEP to call for change. So really every early childhood professional should be concerned with the rights of children, shouldn't they? I mean, it's, it's a foundational element of the um, ethics and uh, the, the code of ethics that we have. And OMEP offers another opportunity for people to get involved. Can you um, tell our audience about how they can actually join OMEP and be a part of this call to action? You're, you're right, Leanne. I mean, in early childhood, early childhood teachers are very good at standing up for the rights of the children in their centres, but we need to think beyond the children in our centres. We need to think about the children in our communities. We need to think of the, more broadly as well of these children that are in detention centres, both in Australia and offshore. Um, we can't just think about those who we can see. We have to think about those who, who are, are invisible. Um, because if we don't do it, if we people who are concerned with the rights of children don't stand up, and say something, then who is going to do it? Who is going to stand up for the rights of children? Um, so I, I think it's, it's a fundamental responsibility of anybody who cares for children. And I also think there's a, an imperative, a moral imperative for teachers and early childhood educators to stand in solidarity with those teachers and educators who have been working in very adverse conditions in those detention centres to try and improve um, what happens for children in those conditions, but are also now faced with um, laws that really are designed to prevent them from speaking out. And, uh, you know, I think there's also a professional solidarity that's, hmm. that's um, called upon here. And recently we were seeing that on Four Corners with those very brave teachers who spoke out and probably yes. risked um, some level of prosecution as well. So yes. it's, it is that solidarity that we must... Um, we must share and, and support those teachers to continue that voice and ensure that that, that actually happens. Mm. So people can actually join OMEP um, Australia and there may be people in other places apart from New South Wales who are interested in joining. So we'll put those details up on the um, Early Education Show website to let people know how they can join and we'll also post the declaration so that people can see what they're supporting as well. Um, and the great thing is about OMEP is that you get on board and you give that voice to young children um, and young refugees who are suffering extreme circumstances in those environments. So thank you very much to both of you for talking and uh, looking forward to the work of OMEP up ahead.
All right, welcome back. We hope you enjoyed that little uh, bonus chat with um, Leanne, with uh, Fran and Sandy. Um, we're going to move on to a bit of a specific topic about children's rights in the early childhood sector. So we've sort of done the big picture in Australia. We want to talk about uh, particularly you know, work around professionals and practitioners working in the early childhood space. And given it's Children's Week, we might start off with a bit of a uh, controversial question, which I like, like to ask, which um, is how we look at Children's Week at the moment, a bit of a tokenistic way of doing things. And um, given I'm raising this question, I might give a bit of background before getting Lisa and Leanne's feedback. And this, unfortunately, will be the return of Liam McNicholas, the fun crusher. Um, but I look at, you know, in terms of, you know, the, in the work I've done in the sector, I work with a lot of different centres. I've got, you know, in terms of the networks I work in with, particularly in the ACT, but also in New South Wales. And it, it seems to me Children's Week rolls around and the same old stuff sort of happens. We get the bouncy castle, we get the dress-up day, we get blah, 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 blah. Um, and to me, that's not what Children's Week should be about. Children's Week should be about really sort of, you know, seriously and forensically examining um, children's rights, whether you examine the specific topic that's um, that's chosen for this year. And I think we probably all generally agree it's a little, that's a bit trickier this year than it's been before. But even just examining what that looks like in either in centres or exploring with families what that might look like outside centres. But I, I do get a bit, a little bit disheartened when I just, you know, see with the, the sort of the same old stuff that... Um, yes, I think it's position is celebrating children. I think that's really important, but I think it's also really important that the best way to do that is to show we take children seriously, which isn't doing dress-up days or, um, you know, getting an animal farm in or something. You know, that, not that those things are necessarily terrible, but I would love it if the sector said, you know what, we're going to really... We're not going to do that stuff this year. We're going to really look at what the children's rights um, mean in relation to the EYLF or the NQF. And I will put out a little bit of a bias here. And I, very, I, I hate to do promotion, but luckily this isn't promotion for me. It's for the team of incredible centre directors I work with in the organisation I work with at the moment. So both this year and last year, we did exactly that. We that the, the, the centres um, deliberately said, you know, we're not doing what we normally do. And we're going to do a daily exploration of what children's rights look like in practice. And the way um, they did that, particularly last year, was by encouraging children to draw or write or express themselves about um, what they view as important at their time in the centre. And there was some fantastic artwork developed during that week that was then sort of shared in a show um, or sort of, you know, an art experience that was done um, for our organisation. And that, to me, was a really um, new and different and, and interesting way of exploring that and the feedback we got from families was fantastic they didn't miss the you know the the, the standard stuff we did it was a really interesting way to think about it and so you know that's my sort of high horse moment but what do you two think is it is it my being ridiculous or, or are we a bit too tokenistic about it can i just ask a question liam how Please. many services what proportion of services do you think celebrated at all I think, well, top of the head count, I reckon probably most do. I reckon it would be about 75%. I mean, I always seem to see... Yeah? Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think it's a... I don't know that it's that high. I think that it's... I remember in sort of back in, you know, historically, it was an opportunity, as you say, Liam, to get the jumping castle and do those those sorts of things in Children's Week. And I remember I was always quite huffy about it and thinking we should just be in education week like schools um i've probably got a different perspective on on it now and i I wouldn't mind it being called children's rights week i think that would be fantastic because Mm. then we would get the focus as you say around the sorts of things that um the services that you work with uh are doing 
but I, I it's like everything in in the sector everybody has a different perspective on this you know it's it and some people want to celebrate the the joy and fun stuff and I'm not saying you're sucking the fun out of it Liam but I do think your ideal children's week would probably have been when you were five sitting down and watching Doctor Who <laughs> but <laughs> you know him too well yeah <laughs> but I think well, you know, it comes back to that thing for me is it doesn't matter what they say so long as they're talking about you. And maybe that's what Children's Week is. Maybe it is that focus. I'm not greatly enamoured of it either. I love the idea of this focus on children's rights. I think that is fantastic. See, that's where I think um, we come we come undone a little bit just to that if they're talking about, you know, at least they're talking about us. But I think what it does is it feeds into the perception of, the work of early childhood education is not that serious. It goes, oh, it's a bit of fun. And so instead of that moment where we could really do some advocacy for the sector about, no, this is really serious and important. We're not here to have fun. I think it, I probably disagree with you slightly earlier, and I think it actually doesn't help and may actually sort of damage the advocacy we're trying to do in the sector. Mm. <laughs> 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 I didn't actually even know children's rights was linked to the convention. I didn't know children's week was linked to the convention until this year. I it, It's never struck me as, like, something important. It was something Leanne always had to remind me that children's week was coming up when we were doing newsletters and things because it would completely go over my head. And I'm shocked, Liam, that you think that that many, that higher proportion of services actually celebrate it. I'm, you know, I think it would be way, way less than that. Look, I could I be wrong. It'd be interesting to see what listeners yeah. think and um, we've obviously got our contact information at the end. But I, think, I, but I think it's like a default thing. I think it's that thing where particularly, you know, educators and center directors, they're struggling for things to do or it's, I, I get the sense, I it could be entirely wrong, but I get the sense it just kind of, there's enough um, marketing around it so each state and territory has its own sort of children's council that does seems to do relatively well around sending stuff out I, I think it's just a bit of a you reckon well I don't know I don't I'm pretty I sure do, I think no, I think it's pretty tokenistic. Like, you know, if you look at the amounts of money that those children's weeks have got, like it's a few thousand dollars from the Commonwealth each for each state and territory. They're not doing much marketing around it, Yeah. Do you know what, Lisa? I I think I'm going to confess to not knowing that it was linked to the convention. I'm good. <laughs> that makes me so much better. I actually... I mean, I, I I really noticed it this year because it was Article 17, but I I am I'm actually quite surprised. <laughs> <laughs> We're all well, learning on this podcast. It's exciting. For like over the years, when I was you know within um, working as a director or a teacher, I don't think we ever thought about the convention at the time. <laughs> and, I'm actually about... very embarrassed right now. <laughs> Well, I'm wagging my anti-fun finger at you now, Leanne, for over Skype. <laughs> well, I always or, or head an organisation that was one of the coordinating organisations for New South Wales. <laughs> yes, Lisa, and I was aware of it in recent years. But what I'm oh, saying is, in the in the eighties, I 
don't think I, I, I mean, I thought that it was a relatively contemporary thing that was happening with the convention. <laughs> I didn't realise that that was the inception of it. I'm pretty sure that, I, 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 I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's been, you know, but that probably raises a good point, actually, something you said earlier, Leanne, maybe we need to look at, do we separate this stuff out if we want to do Children's Week as a sort of, you know, celebration of childhood and play and, and fun, which I think there is a place for. Just probably don't invite me, which I don't know why anyone would do anything fun. But um, if you want to do that, then that's fine. But I think if we're going to have this, which is tied to, which is nominally t- tied to children's rights, I think that has to be taken a bit more seriously. And it might be worth having a look at, do we do, you know, two? Or do we look at maybe just embedding, doing a better job on a daily basis of embedding celebration of children and play and um, children's learning? Yes. Well, I tell you what, I'll be looking at it in a whole different way now. <laughs> well, it's probably not a bad segue in terms of um, looking at You're the other thing. Very embarrassed. <laughs> well, embarrassment might be the answers for one of these questions. But we might. I wanted to have a look at what are um, sort of the uh, barriers to advocacy in early childhood. Why aren't we better at standing up for children's rights? It might be that we're embarrassed that we don't know things. And this is a safe space, Leanne. It's absolutely you, 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 you're fine. Oops. We're all here to learn, which is absolutely great. But we know that it's been, you know... I didn't, I didn't mean to shame you, either. <laughs> like, I'd shamed myself first. It was just that, yeah, like, if people in, um, you know, both educators and those in higher positions in the s- sector don't have that understanding of its history, then certainly, you know, it's, it's not getting out there. Yes, and I, I mean, we, when we're talking about this and we're talking about advocacy, I certainly haven't held back on advocacy over the years in early childhood. <laughs> and I do know I do know my history in advocacy, just because I didn't know what that one week was. <laughs> See, this is all. We were being too nice to each other for the last few episodes. We were all patting each other on the back. This is much better. We're much better at this kind of stuff. But... Um, <laughs> With that, well, Leanne, I'm gonna I'm gonna go straight to you then, because if with your um you know experience in this particular topic, and, and again with your focus on leadership, why? What do you think are the barriers to? Um, I think I probably want to focus specifically on educators and teachers rather than sort of sector leaders. Why? Where where's that sort of struggle coming from in standing up for for children's rights as they sort of pertain to the UNCRC? Oh well, I think you hinted a little bit at it just a couple of minutes ago about are we. Are we nervous about what we're talking about? Do we feel like we're knowledgeable enough about that? And um, also understanding that small actions can have just as big an impact. And Lisa and I ran a, a, an advocacy masterclass. Um, I think, was it only last year, Lisa? I'm just trying to remember. No, it didn't have it to the be year, the year before. The year before. And uh, what was marvellous was that it, it it sort of broke down and everybody started to understand the simplicity in advocacy and the small actions that they could take. And I think sometimes people feel like it has to be really big stuff that you do in standing up for children's rights when it is actually part of your everyday work. So we're very good at our everyday work of of um, observing children's rights in our early childhood programs and then the steps on from there might be quite simple, but do we feel it's too complex? Do we feel it's too complex to challenge power? Do we feel like we've got a right to address children's rights with our MPs? And that was something I think we we really discovered with our group was that people didn't always feel that they had the right to approach their local members when everybody has a right to do that and to bring that issue to their attention. So I think sometimes it is about 
confidence um, and about having a crew to do that with, having people around you to, to do it as well. And maybe we're just very, very um, busy early childhood educators and teachers and feel like this is another component of the, the work that we do that maybe there's not enough time for. But my feeling is that as an early childhood teacher, an early childhood educator, it's your responsibility to be an advocate. You don't actually have a choice. Oh, look, absolutely, Leanne. I think there's quite a few reasons, but two main ones as to why teachers and educators don't see it as part of their role and part of their responsibility to be advocates. One of the first reasons, I think, is because they often don't believe in themselves as experts about children. And I think that's really sad because you guys are. You know more about what children need than anyone else in Australia. And that knowledge, that knowledge about what children need means you have the rights and responsibilities to stand up and talk about those things. So when things happen like Don Dale or when things happen like, you know, a focus on detention centres overseas, that actually is really connected to what you do because you are the ones that know what the impact of that would be on children. You just have to flip it for a minute and and transpose the children that those things are happening to, to children at your service. What would it be like for them if it was happening for them? And then it almost kind of like once you do that, you almost have to stand up and talk about it because you know how terrible it would be. But I think because because of the status and standing of educators, we just don't see ourselves or you don't see yourselves as people who have that amount of knowledge. You underplay the knowledge that you do really have. And the second reason is because you don't make the connection between what you do and children's rights. You don't, you know, uh, clearly see that that even, for example, uh, the right to to education and care is in fact a right of children. You think it is something that it would be great if Australia gave children, but you don't see it as a right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think you're right, Lisa. I think, it, yeah, we, because I think it feeds into my, probably the big barrier to advocacy um, in this space for me is that um, I don't we I don't think we're clear in any of the, um, you know, uh, either TAFE courses or even um, in the tertiary qualifications. We don't really, we don't teach this well about how to actually explore rights with children. I think we... We assume people are engaging with it, so it's a fundamental, you know, one of the documents for the sector, so part of the Code of Ethics, part of the EYLF. I think we just assume it's there and people will engage with it, but as with anything, I think we need to actually be better at teaching people how to teach it. Um, in any other topic, you know, the, you know, looking at you know exploring Indigenous perspectives or, you know, you know the, the dreaded documentation discussion, there's endless workshops, there's endless discussions on how that's approached. I don't think we do that very well with children's rights. I don't think we actually sit down and go, you know, what are the ways we can explore and do this um, in a way that will, A, uh, help the children you're currently working with, but B, sort of get develop that confidence, which is what I think you were sort of, you know, sort of actually sort of both uh, discussing, is that 
there's a real crisis of confidence in the sector about engaging with this kind of stuff, whether it's, um, you know, due to more concerns about, yeah, you, you know, politi- getting involved in politics or just, you know, being seen as not knowing stuff. But um, that to and me I, would be I, a key thing we could do. And I, that, I agree, Liam, and I think there's another component of this about how we, and talking about it there, how we teach children about their rights, but also about how to be advocates themselves and how mm. to be activists. And we underestimate, I'm not talking about early childhood um, professionals, because I don't think they underestimate children's capacity <laughs> to to speak up, but we, publicly, you know, there's an underestimation of children's capacity and um, understanding of how they will speak up and they are great advocates, but we need to draw that out as well and how how we present that. And I was even listening to something on the radio this morning on a on a uh, popular network and uh, the broadcaster was interviewing a young person about, it's a bit of a segue, but parking rights for uh, people using hospitals. And he was a 13-year-old and I thought, oh, he's obviously had a wonderful early childhood education because he <laughs> was really... Right, he was fantastic at speaking about this topic and the action that he's taken. But that broadcaster really underestimated his capacity um, and was quite amused by it, I thought. It, you know, in, in a well, bemused, I suppose. And I think this is where we need to be thinking more about how we teach children their rights to be advocates and activists in the future as well and their civic responsibilities and that is part of the convention as well well that probably gets us really nicely and onto our sort of final point which is um you know how can uh, educators and the rest of us in you who are working professionally in this space how can we better promote children's rights and I'll, i might start off before turning over to you to you three that uh, so you two, all three of our recommendations this week are actually all really fantastic resources for educators to engage with children's rights. So that's a bit of a sneak preview for the final part of the podcast uh, at the end. But, you know, what are the other things, you know, that you two think we should be making sure that um, educators and teachers and professionals working in that space, what, what, you know, what are the practical things we can do to, to engage in children's rights? Stand up without thinking whenever you see a right being violated. Just don't even think about it. Just stand up and say, no, that's, you know, like have a list of the rights somewhere, you know, on your wall, etc. And when you see a child's right being violated or when you hear about a child's right being violated somewhere else in Australia, just say that's a violation. And I think that the more you talk about, you know, the code, the more then other people realise that... Australia is signatories to something really important. The the other thing I'd say is just educate parents and children as much as possible. Children, you know, like some children have a very innate sense of what their rights are. Other children um, are very good at suppressing each other's rights. You know, I think that it's easy in a day-to-day situation in a service to interweave the rights into the sorts of situations that you deal with um, with children, you know, on a regular basis. Yeah, I, I agree with those things, Lisa, and I think that my, my recommendation would be to, to revisit the Convention on the Rights of the Child and really look at that and and reflect on, on how you're um, enacting that Convention. And the other thing I would say is, 
wherever this question comes into your mind and you feel a bit um, perplexed about should I stand up for this child's rights, I think that should always be replaced with I will stand up for this child's rights. I think that's the only thing that you can do. Yeah, I think I agree. I think it's, you know, developing that, um, you know, particularly as a team. It's great if you can, you know, at staff meetings or team meetings or um, however those are sort of managing services that you look at a team approach to that and maybe looking at, um, you know, sort of, you know, having a document or something that says, you know, we are um, supporters of children's rights or we are um, enactors of children's rights in our service because I think often... Um, we can be a bit sort of isolated in the sector and if you can sort of come together as a team and look at um, how, you know, the the, the um, articles of the UNCRC can be implemented, either implemented, which, you know, they, they should be, but either implemented or explored um, is often a better way to do it, in, you know, as a team with, with the groups of children you're working with, um, can be, a I guess, a safe way for people to engage and discuss those topics and then, um, you know, share those with, with families. But... Um, yeah, I think as you're right, I think it's it's not something we have a choice. The only thing we have a choice about is how we do it, not whether we do it. And I think um, there are there are lots of different ways of doing it. And it would be, um, yeah, it would be great to hear from from professionals uh, who are exploring those in different ways within their within their services. But um, if there's, I think we've um, had a great topic. Unless there's anything else from. From either of you, we might move on to our recommendations for the week, which I think fit in nicely with um, that last point, which is the um, the uh, resources and then suggestions for educators for how to, to engage with children's rights. So I'm trying to think who went first last time. I think it might have been... I think, we, I think we've kicked, we, we haven't let Lisa do it for the last little while because I think it might have been you and me, Leanne. So do you want to go first, Lisa? I think I've been going first all night, haven't I? But I'd love to go first on this one. Um, look, mine is a book which is a child's picture book and I reckon every service needs to have this one. I bought it when it came out in 2012 because it was so beautifully um, illustrated and it's called I Have the Right to Be a Child and it's just a book where... Um, uh, the narrator describes what it means to be a child with rights and what those rights are. And it's just a really simple way to introduce that topic to children from, you know, whatever age. You can buy it through Amazon and it's really pretty. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. What about you, Leanne? Uh, well, my one is a report. Every year the National Children's Commissioner releases a children's rights report um, and through the Australian Human Rights Commission. And this one is a child-friendly version of that report. And it's probably not early childhood friendly. It's more kind of early primary friendly or primary friendly. But I just love the idea that the Commissioner is releasing a report that speaks to children and that has been developed specifically for children as a version of um, her children's rights report. I think the next step would be to release an early childhood friendly um, version of this report. But it's a great, it's just a great look at how something can be rewritten um, for a different audience and, and also help children to understand their own rights. That's great. Thanks, Leanne. And um, mine's probably along a similar theme. Mine's from uh, UNICEF, which is the 
a global organisation that's sort of for the um, protection of children, and it's um, it's a very sort of simplified um, exploration of the, the UNCRC, and it looks at what child rights are. And I particularly like it for for a couple of reasons. Um, it's you know it has images of children from all around the country and all their diversity and um, amazingness, and it sort of really nuts down what can be sometimes quite tricky language in the in the, uh, the convention itself to very simple statements about what children I know are. wouldn't you love to rewrite the convention in really simple language uh, yeah but then a lot of bureaucrats would be out of a job Lisa if we're going to do that so we've got to think of their rights as well um, but what uh, I, what I particularly like about this one and I've seen this done really well in a number of centres it's really it's not as pretty as yours by, by any way shape or form Lisa <laughs> but what it is it's really simple to sort of reverse engineer and do your own version of and I've seen centres do this um, uh, really well there's a, fan, there's a centre in the ACT that particularly sort of blew me away is um, is is doing this but using images from your own centre or getting families oh, to bring so images. you mean it's stealing the words from UNICEF and overlaying it over your own photos well, when you put it like that Lisa it's not doesn't sound so wonderful but well the, I, it's the, a the, share the, economy Lisa exactly the words economy. are owned by everyone Lisa but there's um, a, no 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 there's a huge copyright thing on every page of it right so you're actually breaking the law if you do that Oh, well, too. I, yeah, look, I doubt that. But if anyone gets in trouble, they're welcome to haul me out before the thing. But I think <laughs> there would be, my, this language has to be publicly owned. It's a bloody convention on the rights of the think, child. And it is, this one, actually, I think you could use with young, very young children as well, because yeah. it is beautifully presented and it would inspire a lot of conversation around um, inclusion and diversity as well. Absolutely. Um, and you can even take these, so it's just presented as a PDF, so you can even take the images separately and display them. Uh, so you can either print it as a book or sort of display them separately on um, you know, on a display somewhere. But um, I think they're, you know, not to toot our own horns, but they're three really great recommendations. And if you're looking to begin an exploration of children's rights in your centre, um, you could certainly do far worse than actually getting all three of those resources together and having a discussion with your team about them and actually... If that's uh, something you end up doing, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. And if you want to get in touch with us, there's a few different ways you can do it. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash earlyedushow. That's early E-D-U show. We have the same handle on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash earlyedushow. Um, you can obviously find the podcast in iTunes. And again, I'll do my uh, weekly spruik to say, please, if you enjoy the podcast, give us a rating and review. It really, We really appreciate Liam, it. a few people were asking on Facebook this week. They said they'd like to do that, but they didn't know how to do that. Oh. How do you do that in, in iTunes? Well, really briefly, so you have to have iTunes. You basically have to be doing it on a sort of Apple device, on iPod or an iPhone. Um, but there's a podcast app that's pre-installed on everyone's Apple device if you have one. Um, basically, you just need to search for the Early Education Show and it'll come up with the show page. And then there's a little tab that says Reviews, and then you can add a review in that. But if you're having specific trouble, um, you know, you can uh, leave a comment on the Facebook page or hit us up on Twitter um, individually, and to do that, you can find me at Liam McNicholas, or me at Lisa J Bryant, or me at Leanne M Gibbs three. 
So I think. Yay! 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 <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I think from all three of us, we hope uh, everyone who's listened has had an enjoyable Children's Week and has explored children's rights, children's rights in the ways um, that you know are most contextual to the children and communities they they live in. Um, we'd love to hear from anyone who uh, who's sort of engaged with those issues and let us know how you did it. But. Um, we'll be back uh, next week, as usual, and we're looking forward to that. So until then, it's bye from me. And me. And from me. Oh, look, absolutely, Leanne, I agree. I think this, you know, surprisingly enough, I think that this... <laughs> I tell you what, this is going at the end of this episode as a blooper. Every time you do that now, you you won't be able to. Okay. Okay. Professionalism at all times, people. Look, absolutely, Leanne. I think it's. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>